Amen. Yeah, you all can have a seat. Yeah, by all means, give it up for our worship team this morning. Thank you. Um, if you haven't met me, my name's Joe, and I get to, I'm the associate pastor of our online engagement and communications, and I feel like I haven't been in Norwalk for a while, and this is really my home church, and so I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Thanks for worshiping with us. If you're a guest for the first time, special welcome to you. Um, today, we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to talk about sharing our faith, which is, you know, for some people, is really easy. I've known people in my life, they can talk about Jesus. They can people in almost any conversation. At the drop of a hat, they can talk about Jesus. Um, for some people, it's more difficult. And I'm one of those people where it's more difficult. And I'll just be real with you. Like, I'm afraid a lot of times to share my faith. And, and most of you won't believe this, but I'm actually pretty introverted. Like, standing on a stage, giving a message, no problem. But to be one-on-one -on -one with a person, making small talk, trying to get to know someone. Um, and I tend to, like, avoid difficult conversations. So when I feel like, like God is telling me, hey, you know, tell this person about Jesus, I'm like, yeah, I'd rather eat a bus tire than, like, do that. Like, I'm so afraid. Like, what if they don't like me after this? Do they think I'm weirder, you know? And so uh, we're going to talk about that. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge that, first of all, we're all in different areas or journeys in our life. We're all in different phases, different places, and we're all in our different places in our, in our journey with Jesus, different places in understanding God and the Bible. And, you know, you might be in this room and you're still checking out this whole God thing, and uh, I encourage you to continue to do that, to, to, that this can be a place where you can ask difficult questions and you can examine the evidence for the truth of Jesus. You might be here for the first time because you had to come, you know, you're dating somebody and they're like, I'm going to church and you want them to like you or you're still home from college and your parents are like, hey, when you're under our roof, you're going. So we're just glad that you're here. Uh, now, a lot of us in this room can say, no, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And of course, any, the role of any Christian is to follow Jesus. And you can't be a follower of Jesus very long until you realize that one of the things we're to do as Christians is to speak up for Jesus. Jesus told us to do that. Before he ascended into heaven, he said in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even Ohio. So we are called to talk about Jesus. But how do I do that? You know, how do you do that? There's a lot of wrong ways to talk with, Je to talk with others about Jesus. I've seen it, you know, social media posts. Um, and not that social media is bad, but I see people that have post something that may be completely true, but it's very alienating. You know, because you can post something on Facebook, and if people who are following you don't really know you, it can seem very divisive, like you're just putting up a wall. Sometimes they don't really leave room for conversation. Um, using God's word in a society that honestly doesn't really value or see it as relevant or true. Street corner evangelism. We were driving through um, Mansfield last week, and there was a guy on the corner of the street reading the Bible and just screaming it at people. And I was like... I want to meet that conversion story. Like, how'd you give your life to Jesus? Well, I was just walking along, and this guy was just yelling about how I was going to go to hell. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. So, you know, billboards, protests, um, using, using Jesus to judge other people. And then, you know, people are, you know, it's difficult because what about people who just consider God totally irrelevant? Or those who are really completely ignorant of, of true Christianity, they don't know anything about it. 
Or people who are intellectual, really smart, but they're closed off to Jesus. Or some people who are really religious, but, you know, they don't really get the gospel. You know, they just grown up going to church, and they understand the traditions, and, you know, they're there, but they don't really get what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Well, in Acts 17, where we're going to be this morning, if you want to read from your Bible or use the YouVersion app, or we'll have the text for you on the screen, um, we're going we're gonna to see an example of how to share your faith from Paul. And in this, I'd, I'd like to do two things. We're going to read Acts 17, 16 through 34. I'm making a few observations. And then from Paul's example, identify some principles that any Christian can follow as we attempt to live for Christ and to speak for Christ, to be his witnesses. So the story begins this way. It says, well, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. So Paul, in his second missionary journey, had traveled there by himself. He arrives in Athens. Um, and imagine Paul's excitement when he gets to Athens, right? This is like, you know, the Big Apple. And it was a place and still is a place of incredible beauty. It's on the sea. They had amazing architecture, advanced culture. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all of the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. So this is interesting. So Paul is in probably one of the most beautiful cities he's ever been in. Uh, full of beauty and architectural wonder, and yet he's deeply troubled, and some versions say distressed, because there were idols and shrines everywhere, and I mean everywhere. And, you know, we think of idol worship, and a lot of times we think, well, that was like something ancient people did. We don't really make gods out of stone or wood or, or anything like that. But idolatry at its core is really anything that can take the place of God in your life. So we don't necessarily make idols out of gold or ivory anymore, but we do make them out of engines and metal panels and wood and siding and brick and a lot of other things in our life as well, too. Uh, we think that idol worship is a thing of the past, but it's alive and well today, and unfortunately, even among us as Christians. And they can be good or they can be bad, and in fact, the better they are, the more difficult they can be to see in our lives. So Paul is surrounded in this city, surrounded by idols, and, you know, he doesn't just like, oh, this place is a bunch of sinners and throws up his hands and quits. No, he, he does something else. He, he gets to work. It says in 1717 that he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all that happened to be there. So he goes to the synagogue, and he reasoned and he argued about Jesus from the Jewish scriptures. And in the public square or marketplace, he talked with whoever was there and willing to listen to him talk about the, the gospel. The gospel, which is just the good news. The good news that Jesus came and he died and he was resurrected and that through faith in him, we can be saved and given eternal life. But then there was a third group. It says he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So these were the super smart leading philosophers of the day. Um, the Epicureans, you know, just broadly, they were, they taught that you only had one life and that, that the, the goal of life was to pursue happiness and pleasure. You know, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. You know, YOLO, that's what the Epicureans were. Um, and they were the fun guys. So the Stoics, on the other hand, they suppressed their desire for pleasure and had a high, emphasize a high sense of duty. Uh, so if you were going to throw a party, you wanted the Epicureans to come, and the Stoics probably just work security or something. So it says when he told the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers about Jesus and the resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? Well, 
when they said that Paul was, oh, sorry, others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign god. So when they said that Paul was a babbler, what they meant was like he wasn't just going on and on. It said it sounded like he's picking a bunch of different philosophies from different um, religions, and he's trying to blend them together into some crazy fabricated idea. But they were intrigued. It goes on, it says, Then they took him to the high council of the city, or Areopagus. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things. We want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So the Areopagus, which literally means the Hill of Ares, or from the Greek Mars Hill, this was the place to go if you were smart, right? if you were a thinker. They sat around and deliberated over the latest news and ideas and philosophies. And even for Paul, who was a very smart guy, this is probably intimidating to walk into knowing each person there is really smart and they think they're right. You know, maybe you've met people before who just, you know, they're just always right. They're just right all the time. And you're like, I don't even know I'm having a conversation with you, right? And they were very overly critical of new ideas. So there he is. He's at the famous Areopagus with all of these incredibly intelligent people. And what's his, what are his first words going to be? How is Paul going to get their attention? Well, he says this. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. So when Paul first arrives in Athens, he sees all these idols and shrines. But also he saw that they were at least willing to admit their ignorance because there was an idol, there was an idol inscribed to an unknown God. This was like their, their umbrella insurance policy, right? Just in case we missed a God, we don't want to offend, so we're going to make one shrine that's just going to cover all the rest of them. So Paul rolls up his sleeves and he's like, I'm going to tell you, who that is, I'm going to fill in the blank for you. So Paul uses five points to, to preach the gospel, to tell them about Jesus and the resurrection. And in that exposes the emptiness and the darkness of their idolatry. The first thing he says is that God is the creator of the universe. He says, um, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. So what Paul is saying here, he's like, you're thinking way too small. Your idols and shrines are totally inadequate to hold the one who has made everything, including the elements that you made to make these shrines. You can't put the true God in a box. And he goes on that God is a sustainer of life, and humans can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. How ridiculous for these Greek philosophers to th suppose that God could be confined to a sh tiny shrine that was built with human hands when he himself is the one who gave them life. He says that God is the ruler of all nations. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he would determine their boundaries. 
His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far off from any one of us. For him, for in him we live and move and exist. So he says that God has created all of the nations by his sovereign hand, and by his sovereign hand some rise and some fall. And not one nation is more highly valued than the other. That includes Greece, which the Athenian, which was considered by the Athenians to be above all the other nations, kind of like how we feel about America, right? God's heart is for every nation, including Greece, and every people group to seek after him and find him. And he's saying that God can be found. He is not far off. He is not hiding. And then hoping to connect with his audience, Paul says this. He uses a poem from a 6th century Cretan poet that he uses a poem from this 6th century Cretan poet that they would have recognized. He says, for in him we, we believe and move and exist. In other, so Paul is saying this, in other words, whether you believe it or not, you exist because of this unknown God that you have this inscription to. He goes on, he says, God is the creator of all human beings. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. Again, connecting with his, with his audience, we are his offspring is a quote from a third century Stoic author. The author of that quote was referring to the Greek god Zeus, but Paul turns it around and uses it and tells them, hey, this is true, but it's talking about a different god, the one true god. And Paul suggests how crazy it is to think that an item made from ivory or gold or stone could have offspring. It's like you, your, your philosophy falls apart logically. His point in creation terms is that we are all given life by God. And then finally, Paul hits it home with this, that God is the judge of the world. He says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things earlier, in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So Paul says this. He lays it out. He says, every person everywhere is guilty for God, including Paul himself. He doesn't place himself above, above others. And Paul is clear about three realities, is that one, judgment is universal, and no one is exempt. And that judgment is going to be completely just and fair. And that though judgment day is unknown, the judge is known. The judge is the one who was raised from the dead. He says, this Jesus who you have heard of, the one who was raised from the dead, is God and is judge. Your unknown God is him. The story ends with these words. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So some rejected the gospel, some believed the gospel, and some just still weren't quite sure. So in this account of Paul's conversations here in Athens, what are some things that we can learn and we can use so that we, when we feel like God is calling us to share our faith with someone, we know what to do? Well, the first one is this, is to recognize your sphere of influence. So Paul, whether he was in the synagogue or the marketplace or the Areopagus, he was uniquely prepared and placed by God to be a witness wherever he found himself. 
And you and I, likewise, are uniquely prepared and placed by God to be witnesses for Jesus wherever we may find ourselves. You know, when you leave here today as a, as a Christian, you're going to go home or you're going to go out to lunch somewhere, and you're going to be with friends, you know, family, maybe your neighbors. And some of those people may be far off, far away from God. You know, and they're searching, but they're just not quite getting it. Or this week, you're going to go to work, or maybe you get to work from home. You're going to engage on social media. You're going to work out at the gym, shop at the regular stores, stop at your coffee shop. Um, maybe you're going to coach a team of kids. Maybe you're going to play on a team. Maybe you're getting ready to teach a class or go back to school this fall. And, and when, everywhere you go, the people around you that God has placed there are going to be people with questions. Questions that need answers. People who need grace. People who need love, not condemnation or judgment for how they live. Though all the places you go are your God, the people you know, the places God has put you, that is your sphere of influence. The people that you rub shoulders with every single day. Individualize, uniquely granted to you as the place where you represent Jesus with your attitudes your actions, your behaviors, and your words. So just as Paul was willing to associate with the church or the synagogue, the marketplace and the Areopagus, what about you and me? Are we willing to associate with those around us? Because you come to church on a Sunday morning, and for the most part, we're all pretty similar, right? We, we believe similarly. A lot of us think similarly. We have similar values. All right, that's easy, right, when you're around your people. But... But are we willing to go to the other places? You know, do you avoid those places? Do you avoid those people, right? Because, well, hey, you're a Christian. You know, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't go to a place like that. Or you're a conservative, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't talk with people. Or, or at least you wouldn't spend a lot, extended period of time with people like that. You know, you're protecting your family by not exposing them to the world. Ooh, it's scary out there. There's cuss words. You know, you don't want your kids to hear that, see that, whatever. So you got to stay away. You know, we don't go to that place, right? We don't go there after this time. We don't go there on that day, right? Because those people are there, right? It was great. I, went, I bought a car this summer, and I did the paperwork or the paperwork over the phone. And when I got there, the guy was like, all right, I don't want to be rude, but you are not what I expected. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, you said you were a pastor. I'm like, yeah, I am. He goes, well, you don't look like a pastor. I was like, that's all right. You know, I don't ever want somebody to be like, oh, you're a pastor? I'm surprised. Oh, why is that? Because you're a jerk. No. <laughs> but, but I have my spheres of influence, right? I can reach a completely different group of people because of what I do, what my hobbies, my passions are, my interests are, the way that I work. I can reach a whole different group of people than Pastor Todd can or you can, right? We each have our own spheres of influence. But then what do we do? Well, the first thing I think that Paul says is to see what God sees. Because Paul reveals in this story that as Christians, we should see beneath the, the surface. How so? Well, Athens was a beautiful place. Uh, beautiful and attractive in every way, Paul says. And yet Paul, taking in all the beauty and the wonders, saw what everybody else saw beyond what everybody else saw. He became distressed, deeply disturbed, because he saw a city that was submerged in idols. And when so you look at someone that God has put in your life, whether you like them or not, what do you see? You know, few people, we don't have idols really made of stone or ivory or gold. 
But we still have idols that replace God, idols that are actually more insidious and gradually sink their roots deep down. I mean, we think of like, yeah, drugs and alcohol, that's an idol, right? That's something that's taken the place of God. But what about the culturally approved ones, you know, like power, fame? And I'm not talking about like movie star fame. I'm talking about just like being socially or, you know, internet famous, being famous, you know, in town or at your school, you want to be popular, right? Wealth, possessions, beauty. The, the ones we applaud after, right? Like seeking a relationship. Like I've seen people say or post online, oh, my kids, they're my life. And I'm like, that is a dangerous thing. Because when your kids let you down and they will, your identity crumbles along with that. Your kids were never meant to bear the full burden of your existence and happiness and contentment. And yet we think that the, these things are okay. They can all be idols. They can all be substitutes for God. And so when you see someone who on the surface, it seems like they have it all together, right? They got the car, the house, the boat, the family, manicured lawn, all of that, or at least they have some of it together. Can you look a little bit deeper? Is that person, maybe your friend, your family member, are they looking for something in all of that success that that success will never, never give them? Meaning, purpose, value. They're looking for it in places and in things that can't be found. Or when you see someone who's just a total mess, right? You all know these people. You, you know, they're just not like you. They don't live like you. They need to get it together, right? Can you see beyond that mess, beyond their actions and behaviors and words, which are just a symptom of an empty heart, and graciously point them to Jesus? Or are you disgusted and judgmental of their lives because of you who maybe thinks that you have done something to earn your salvation, your place in God's family, that you brush them off because you're like, I'm not going to associate with those people. And that's a disgrace to the gospel and a disgrace to Jesus when we do that. Remember where Jesus went and who he spent time with. No one was outside of his love and grace. In fact, Jesus spent so much time in the wrong place with the wrong people that he was labeled as a glutton, as a drunkard, as a friend of sinners. How would you like it if we at the church knew you as the friend of sinners? I remember the, the Last Supper, Judas ate too. That Jesus, before the Last Supper, washed the feet of the man that he knew was going to betray him. And yet we keep ourselves away from those people because we're Christians. A Christian sees beyond the surface, beyond the, beyond the behavior, beyond the words, to look for ways to introduce a friend or a family member or a neighbor or even a stranger or a coworker to the one true God who ultimately gives them meaning and purpose and rest for their soul. And all of that through faith in Christ, not of anything that we've done to earn it. So to do that, where do you start? Well, the first thing, you've got to walk in their world, Right? Parents, you know this. If you want to spend time with your kids, you better learn how to play Minecraft. You know, you better get on TikTok. It's just like, I mean, I've learned, like, if you want to be in your kids' world, you got to learn what Pokemon is. You just got to get into their stuff, right? They're not going to just be like, hey, Dad, you know, tell me about cars or football or lawn care. Like, they don't care, right? So... Paul understood the law of reciprocity that if you, get, if you take interest in someone else's world, eventually they, they will take interest in your world. Now, Paul didn't spiritually compromise, but he did respect the Epicureans and the Stoics, understanding that they were creations of God and their views and their opinions on life mattered. Paul did not belittle or berate. He reasoned with them. Paul looked for ways to affirm and even appreciate them by quoting some of their favorite poets. He built bridges, not walls. 
Paul had something that we all need, and that's empathy. And empathy is this. Empathy is not agreeing with or condoning, okay, or approving of, some, of everything that someone else does, but it's getting in their shoes to understand that that person's not crazy for what they think or believe, right? Because I can easily think of somebody who is like completely on the opposite side of me on social issues or something like that, and I can think, man, you're crazy, right? No. If I grew up in their shoes, in their house, with their family, with their personality, their own neurochemistry, and all the things they've been exposed to, I may very well think the way that they do too. To understand that other people's opinions and values matter doesn't mean that they're correct, but they matter, right? So what's it like to get into their shoes and understand where they're coming from instead of just disagreeing with everything that they say? Find ways to come alongside, to build bridges, not saying to compromise your beliefs, but to show interest and develop common ground. I've had the incredible opportunity to do this with our varsity football team here in Norwalk. I've been the team chaplain for four years, and for the first couple years, I was just the weird prayer guy, right? I, they didn't know me. It's just like this dude with tattoos, he comes, he prays at the beginning and halftime, and at the end, a coach makes us do it, right? So I was like, I don't want to be like that. So I started showing up on Mondays and strength coaching and lifting with them. And the, the players who were freshmen when I first started, they're seniors now. And I've been able to build a relationship. And so something cool happened. I love this picture because it just proves that all my friends are still in high school. But they were having, that's true. Hey, if your peers think you're cool, you're cool. But if high schoolers think you're cool, you're really cool. So they were having this sleepover at Contractor Stadium. And they're like, hey, Coach B, will you come and hang out with us? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I brought, you know, a bunch of pizza, classic student ministry move and uh, we played some kickball I didn't get hurt it was great and it's like 11 o'clock at night and I'm already an hour past my bedtime and I'm like I'm gonna be getting out of here but then we sat down and one of them asked me a question he's like hey coach I got a question I'm like what's up he goes well I know you're like a godly man and you know I grew up in church but I don't really live the Christian life I was like that's not a question he's like I know I'm just wondering what you think and then boom Question after question after question about God, about heaven, about hell, about the Bible, about Jesus, about end times, about angels and demons. And I got to unpack the gospel to these, to these kids. Because, not because I was just a random guy who showed up, because I was, building to, I was willing to build relational equity, that they knew who I was, and it took a long time, but it was worth it. Are you willing to get into their world? Then what? And we talk about the good news of Jesus. And that doesn't mean to be a Bible scholar. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, here's an easy way to remind it. God, us, Christ, you. You know, the first one, God is the creator of all things. He created us for himself. And he loves every single one of us. And then the word us, that each one of us is, a saint, is the same. Through our, through, through our behaviors and our attitudes and our actions and our words, we have all sinned against God. We have all turned our back on God and made ourselves the gods of our own life. And that's why we feel disconnected from God. And indeed, that's why so many of us have a to an unknown God mentality, knowing something is out there, but not, we can't make it to God on our own. We can't relate with this God. And then Christ, because of God's love for us, he doesn't want that separation. Even though he'd be completely just and fair by condemning all of us to eternity separated from him, what Jesus called hell. So God doesn't want that, so he sends his son Jesus to die on the cross to completely pay for our salvation. And Jesus rose again, willing to give forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who believes in him. And then you, to believe. And belief for faith is more than just an intellectual understanding, right? I would say most of you in here believe in Abraham Lincoln. It probably doesn't affect your daily life. 
You know, like, why, why are you doing that? I'm doing it for Abraham. No. In Romans 10.9, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. But that's weird, right? Believe in your heart. Because we don't believe with our heart. We believe in our brains. But the difference is you believe in your heart when you trust Jesus with your life. When it goes from more than just believing that he existed to actually believing that he is God and he is Lord. He is the boss and you're going to live for him. It's a decision to admit sin and then the need for a savior and then following that savior who is Jesus. And you know, when you share this with other people, it might be most helpful to start just with your own story. It's not about being a Bible scholar, but if we're called to be witnesses, what is a witness? A witness is somebody who shares what they experienced, right? How has God worked in your life? Just tell that story and then see if it opens up questions. And then lastly, to leave the results up to God. You know, at the end of the day, it's God who saves, who opens the eyes and hearts to Jesus. There's no hint that Paul was upset or discouraged by the results. Sure, some believed, some laughed at him, and others just remained undecided. But success, success in witnessing for Jesus is never defined by the results, but it's always defined by faithfulness. Paul was faithful. Are we willing to be faithful? Then leave the results up to God and let God write that person's story. In all of this, let me close. You know, I've been working at a church for 10 years now, and I still get nervous. I still get tongue-tied, and I'm sure of myself, and I have an opportunity to share my faith. But what do we do when that happens, when we're, te- when we're scared, and we're just not sure what to do? Well, I think Paul's last words in his letter to the Ephesians can help us to understand. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. There you go. As you consider talking, being a witness, where you have the inside track, pray. For boldness to speak. For the right words. For our friends or family member or your neighbor just to understand how good that good news is. And in fact, I'd like to do that as we close today. I'd like to lead us in prayer right now. So let me pray for us. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who still might be seeking, searching. God, that you would continue to open their hearts. God, that you would make yourself known to them. God, Paul says you are not far off. You are not hiding. God, Jesus said whoever seeks will find. Whoever knocks, the door will be opened for them. And God, I pray that they would continue to keep searching. God, I pray for us as Christ followers that we would be witnesses to what you have done in our lives, where you have placed us in our lives, to those you have placed us around, for boldness, for the right words, for our friends to have open hearts, and for us to be willing to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much for coming today. I hope you have an awesome week, and we will see you next Sunday.